Back to when I was a kid, we used to sing that song a lot as a closing song at the end of a service, uh, sort of a song and a prayer of dedication. But it's a good song to sing before the message as well and to just be able to open ourselves up and say, whatever you have for me, Lord, as we look into his word. Before we do that, let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our Heavenly Father, we have made a very bold claim in that, in singing those words, I surrender all. This is our desire. And Father, I pray that you would make it so in our hearts and in our lives. May our willingness and our desire meet with reality. May we regard, may we see Jesus as so precious that we are willing to surrender all our earthly pleasures and, and treasures in view of the surpassing greatness and worth of knowing Christ. May we get a clearer view of how Jesus surrendered all of his privileges and entitlements to, to do according to your good pleasure and to ultimately and willingly surrender his own life so that we could have eternal life. Father, we pray that uh, all of those exalted thoughts that we just sang about, those thoughts of Christ, would carry us into the hearing of your word now. Equip us and enable us to, to be able to live as elect exiles in a godless world. We need the help of your spirit to do that work in our hearts. May he work to that end, we pray, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with the theme of submission. The theme of submission. We haven't decided on our own that we're going to do a topical study of submission this summer. And if we wanted to boost our summer attendance numbers, I would never choose submission as a topic. If someone were to command you to submit, our natural reaction is to sort of clench our teeth. It makes the veins in our neck sort of tighten up just a little bit. Our hands sometimes, even without realizing it as mine did, go into the fist position, right? And that's because our, for submission, is not something that comes natural to us. It hits right at our natural human inclination to be free and independent. We value human freedom. We, in our human nature, want to be free, free to make our own choices, free to make our own decisions, free to decide how to think, free to decide what to do and when to do it. We don't naturally like being under people, which is what the biblical concept of submission really means, which is to place ourselves under. So for us, independent creatures, we don't like thinking about the topic of submission or being in subjection, but we've been there because we're going through the letter of 1 Peter. Started back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, we're to be subject to government. Mm. Really? Well, okay, if I have to, I guess. <laughs> and then the last time he writes that we're supposed to be subject to our bosses or to our employers, even if they're bad bosses, even if they treat us unjustly. Really? Okay, if I have to, I guess. But he doesn't let up. We've got one more to get through as we jump over to chapter 3. So brace yourselves. Actually, the Bible does not paint subjection or submission as I just did in a bad, clench-your-teeth kind of way. 
It paints submission as an exceedingly good thing. A good virtue. A good Christian virtue. An exceptionally good Christian virtue. Those are all important words in describing submission. That's why I put that little sentence in your sermon notes there. An exceptionally good Christian virtue. It's exceptional. I said it does not come natural to humans. And so for Christians, to have the ability to submit is in fact exceptional. Distinctive might be another word. Unnatural. Supernatural. Would also work as ways of describing this kind of submission. It's something we cannot do in our natural state. It is, in that way, exceptional. And it's an exceptionally good Christian virtue. That is to say that our example is Christ. Our model is Christ. The bottom line reason that we as Christians can obey this against human nature command is that we have an example of submission in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one from whom Christians take their name. We saw that back in the middle section on masters and slaves. So look back at 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this, it's talking about submitting to unjust masters, or do this, it says, be submitting to unjust masters, because Christ also suffered to you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Because Christ also suffered to you, leaving you an example. So you might follow in what he did. That shows us that while submission is not an easy thing, it is a good thing. It is an exceptionally good Christian virtue. It's modeled on Christ's submission to his Father. That submission led to the worst kind of suffering imaginable, a worse suffering than you or I will ever have to undergo in our submission, but it led to the best imaginable outcome in that Christ bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness that by his wounds you have been healed from the otherwise incurable sickness of sin how could Jesus do that that should be our question how could Jesus allow himself to suffer unjustly how is that kind of submission possible for us And the answer is back in chapter 2, verse 23. This is the key text for us. It sort of drives all of these submission texts, especially when we're called to submit at times when it doesn't feel right, when it doesn't feel even logical, or maybe it doesn't even feel safe. How could Jesus do it? It's at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the basis for submission. This is how we can do it. We trust God to make all things right. What seems unnatural, what seems hard at the moment, is right and good because we entrust ourselves to Him. And in that way, submission is distinctively and exceptionally a good Christian virtue. So hold that verse in your minds as we go over to this next area of submission. We've dealt with our subjection to the authorities of the land, how we as citizens should honor the emperor. We've gone into our places of work, how we as servants should respect our masters. And now Peter's going to come today and knock at the front doors of your house. 
and specifically in your marriage. So look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So reads God's word. This is another sphere, circle, in which Christians operate in this world. Back at the very beginning of the letter, Peter calls us exiles. We live in this world physically, even though spiritually we've been taken out of this world and we've got an inheritance already waiting for us in another place, in another world, in, in what is our real home, in heaven. But these here are our marching orders while we yet live here. Peter here is aiming to help us exiles know how we can thrive here in the spheres and the circles that, in which God has purposely left us between our salvation and our glorification, this in-between time. And another one of those spheres in which Christians live is in the sphere of the family and, for some, marriages. Peter's especially directing his letter at Christians who might get unfairly mistreated by the world, by unbelievers in the world. And here it's getting more specific. So the audience that's described here doesn't describe all of you, but you all know people who are in this audience. So hopefully this will help you as you minister to other people if, if it doesn't minister to you directly. The guiding statement for this whole section was back in chapter 2, verse 11. Look back there for a second. Peter writes, I urge you, as exiles and sojourners, and he talks there in the first verse, 11, that we have a war on the inside that we have to deal with, but skip down to verse 12. I urge you, as exiles and sojourners, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, this is whom we live among, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, keep your conduct among them honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so they're speaking, And while they're speaking, they may see your good deeds and may glorify God on the day of visitation. So the picture here is of Christians getting verbally bullied, slandered, bad-mouthed, spoken against by Gentiles, by the unbelievers. How should Christians then respond to that bad-mouthing or verbal criticism? It says here, keep your conduct honorable. And you know what? Down the road, those same people that were bad-mouthing you might actually glorify God at the end. Why? Because they see your good works and they see your good deeds. They see your honorable behavior. They're saying only bad things about you, but they're seeing only good things from you. 
And maybe, maybe not now, but in the end, somewhere down the road, they might just get saved and glorify God on the day of visitation. So hold that thought and look again at chapter 3, verse 1. Peter carries that same general idea, people could get saved, into a specific relationship between just two people, a marriage. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, listen, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So you see, the outcome is the same, right? The, the hope is the same. In 2 verse 12, it's Christians that win unbelieving Gentiles by their conduct. And on a much smaller scale, it's the Christian wife that could possibly win the Gentile husband also by her conduct. So you got those general themes running through this letter. The life of a, of a Christian exile is difficult, there's no doubt about that, but we are called to live in this world not in a loud and obnoxious and assertive and argumentative way that always butts head with, heads with unbelievers, but in a quiet and respectful and submissive way, always entrusting ourselves to God. And the bonus is that our conduct might even affect the watching world such that some might be saved. That's the overarching theme for Peter as he instructs these fledgling believers to whom he's writing. And so let's see how that works its way out within a marriage. You might wonder why Peter takes six verses here to instruct wives and only one for husbands. Well, that's because studies have shown that women need six times more instruction than men. (laughs) Kidding. That is absolutely not true. And it will not be on the sermon audio. That, uh, that comes out on the website. Well, I think Peter addresses this verse mainly to wives because in that culture, wives would have been more prone to be dominated by their authoritative husbands. In that cult- culture, usually wives were just expected to follow the husband, including when it came to religion. If the husband worshipped a pagan god, then the wife would automatically be expected to do that as well. If the husband did not believe in any god, the wife would be expected to follow right along, and so on. So, just like the citizen with an emperor, like the slave with a master, so is the wife with a husband. She's more prone to mistreatment. She is the more vulnerable one. And so Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's God's general expectation for all Christian wives. Be subject to your own husbands. But Peter addresses particularly He hones in a little bit more those wives who are married to husbands who, quote, do not obey the word. They may have been, uh, husband and wife may both have been unbelievers when they were married and then the wife got converted. So what should she do now? What, What is her responsibility as a Christian in regard to her unsaved husband? there's a good number of ladies in our church and many churches in this exact situation. This is a very relevant subject and very real for many of you and for those that you know and your circle of influence. If you're in that situation, you, you often come to church alone. Your husband does not share your faith. And so I pray that this is an encouraging word for you. 
Some of you have been heeding the counsel of these verses for a long time. It's, it's not easy. But hopefully this will encourage you to just keep going in the strength of the Lord. For others of you, this might be the word you just needed to hear. You, you might be discouraged by the lack of progress in your unbelieving husband. Or your husband may be resistant to you even coming to church or being interested in God. I pray this is a helpful word for you. I think the same thing goes if you're a husband that has an unbelieving wife, a believing husband with an unbelieving wife. This holds true for you as well. But this is relevant even for all wives, even if your husband is a believer, especially when we get down to verses 3 and 4. What does Peter say to Christian wives about the advantages of living in submission to your husbands? Well, Peter's telling wives to consider three different aspects of embracing this idea of subjection to husbands, and then one consideration for husbands. Well, we've already touched on the first one, which is to consider the opportunity. That was there in verse 1. Be subject to your own husbands. By the way, that word own husbands implies that there is a way of submitting to your own husbands that's not required towards other people's husbands, right? Other men in general. There's a specific kind of submission that wives are to give towards their husbands. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. That one is talking about conversion. If you want to see a cross-reference to that, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Peter talks about what extent he would go to so that people would be one and win people to Christ. So that's what that's talking about. It's talking about conversion. So that may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. A wife A wife can behave, can conduct herself in a way that is winning, in a way that is winsome for the gospel. And it's an interesting approach, isn't it? Maybe even a surprising approach. Did you notice that they may be one without a word? Now this presents a challenge, ladies, does it not? I'm going to go back to walking on eggshells here. I'm sure you've heard the statistics, haven't you? That men use an average of 7,000 words per day and women an average of 20,000? Just the facts, (laughs) ma'am. And now comes this verse saying that husbands who do not obey the word may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Well, let me just say a few things about that. Number one is I looked into the statistics today, yesterday or the day before. They're apparently the stuff of myth. They're not actually true. Number two, this is not saying that Christian wives should never talk to their unbelieving husbands. But this is saying that your conduct can be a tool for evangelism. It's actually a play on words here, a play on the word word. It's saying, okay, if husbands are not going to obey the word, no problem. He can be one without a word by the unspoken behavior of a faithful Christian wife. Wives with unbelieving husbands recognize the opportunity that lies before you. Submission does not mean that you agree with everything your husband says, especially when it comes to your faith. In this way, Peter calls for a kind of submission that is freeing, that goes against the culture in which he was speaking. Remember where women were required to follow the religion of their husbands. 
So this is freeing in that way. You can live out your faith. You're free to disagree with them when it comes to your faith, do you see? But your disagreement should not lead, should not lead to you badgering your husbands with words. Your disagreement is addressed most beautifully and most winsomely through your submissive and, verse 2, respectful and pure conduct. Ironically, it's your nonverbal submission that actually preaches. It preaches the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. It presents an opportunity to win your husbands. In some way, known only to God, that only he could work, your without-a-word behavior and conduct actually proclaims a message. It might be a slow process, but according to this, it can be an effective tool for evangelism. One tool in the tool belt for evangelism. If your posture is just to keep trying to constantly fill your marriage with your good conduct, rather than constantly filling his ears with your words, it might eventually open up an opportunity for his heart to eventually be open to the gospel. Let me say that again. If your posture is just to keep constantly filling your marriage with your good conduct rather than constantly filling your marriage with your good words, even, it might eventually open up an opportunity for his heart to open up to the gospel. Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, that they might see your good works. And the same outcome. You may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Wives, your husbands will become impressed with Christianity as they see your respectful and pure and winsome conduct. So I just want to pause here and address any unbelieving husbands that may be here today. Maybe your wife has been conducting herself for this, way, this way for years. Just constantly and faithfully and lovingly serving you. And today, you came to church with her. Or maybe you've joined her at church off and on over the, over the years, but you have not yet committed your life to Christ. Or maybe you've been coming with her faithfully, but when you go back home, it's back to the same old, same old. Nothing that you have heard here has stuck. It hasn't penetrated into your heart. So she's been conducting herself with submission and respect. She, she hasn't badgered you with her words. Well, today I want to give you the opportunity to... I, I want to give you the words that you need to hear. The words that she hasn't been saying to you. Okay? Here they are. Repent and believe the gospel. God is holy. Always need to remember that. God is good. He's our creator created everything good. We, on the other hand, have all sinned and we have fallen short of God's glory. We've fallen short of God's requirements for us. As our creator, he's allowed to tell us what to do. And we've fallen short. And because of that, you are in line for his judgment. But in his great love and mercy, God sent a Savior to rescue you. His name is Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ lived 
the sinless life that you were required to live, that God required from you. And most amazingly, he took the judgment and the punishment that should have rested on you by dying on a cross. The Bible says if you turn from your sins and if you put all your trust in what Jesus did on that cross, then you will be saved. Husbands, this is your opportunity. Do not let it pass by. Your wife has been praying that you might be saved. Well, second, wives, consider your strategy. Consider your opportunity. Consider, secondly, your strategy. You might be thinking, okay, I'm not supposed to nag. I'm not supposed to badger him with my words. Well, how about if I impress him with the way I look? That should work. I'll fix up my hair nice, I'll get me some nice jewelry, some attractive and expensive clothing. That should work, sounds like a sound strategy. That is, until we get to 1 Peter 3, verse 3. Wives, do not let your adorning be external. What do you mean by external? Well, how about the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry? Or the clothing you wear? (laughs) So much for that strategy, right? Slam on the brakes. Peter doesn't just leave you hanging, though, without a strategy. He gives it to you in verse 4. But let your adorning, so this is your makeup here, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Christian wives, I hope you see the freedom in these verses and not the prohibitions. I hope you see the inner strength that Peter's going for here in these verses. He's, he's not prescribing weakness here. Prohibition and weakness is the way our culture is going to portray these verses, isn't it? Don't disregard that. We live in a I am woman, hear me roar kind of climate, don't we? We, li- we live in a time where women's lack of privilege and at the same time women's rights are being trumpeted. Either as victims on the one hand or as go for it on the other hand. This is not to say women have not been victimized. Women have not been subject to abusive authority from the hands of men over history. Not just in the time in which we live. And I want to be clear and quick to say that if uh, if there's any women that are experiencing physical abuse, you need to let someone know. You need to get safe. If possible, you need to call the police. And your church is here to help you with that if you need help. Please be assured of that. But these words from Peter are countercultural, aren't they? If we only expose ourselves to the entertainment industry, we'll actually see that these three things, hair and jewelry and clothing, are a source of power for women. These powerful women know what attracts men. They know what will get their attention. And if they have their attention, they have power. But Peter goes the opposite direction for Christian wives. A wife's strength and a wife's beauty 
lies within her heart, lies hidden in her heart. This does not mean that wives ought to give no attention to externals or to try to look good for their husbands. It's not saying that. This is not some kind of legalistic ban on outer beauty. But it's just highlighting the greater preciousness and the greater value of inner beauty. That kind of beauty, the kind of beauty that comes through a gentle, if you don't like the word quiet, use maybe tranquil or peaceful spirit, is imperishable. It won't fade with age. Isn't that great? It won't require any kind of you know, makeup enhancer, or at night you don't even have to remove the makeup. It's imperishable. Hidden person of the heart, a gentle and quiet spirit. So, some of you might have already tuned out, but let me address some of you. To you guys, young guys who are looking to get married someday, these are the kinds of gals you should be looking for. Really. Parents of young men, pray for these kinds of women, for your sons. Young ladies, give attention to becoming women like this. There's a strength in this kind of womanhood. womanhood. Mothers and fathers, parents, raise your, raise your daughters to value these kinds of qualities. Notice here that her aim should be to please God first and foremost. Even before her husband. The beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious. In the sight of the world? In the the sight of our home? No. In the sight of her husband? In God's sight. God gives his attention. God is looking for that kind of beauty. God finds this kind of beauty to be precious, to be valuable. Your strategy should be to please God. And everything else will fall into place. A gentle and quiet spirit is a thing of beauty and a thing of strength. God puts his highest price tag on the hidden person of the heart. Very precious. Or the way it says in Psalm 31, verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. Thirdly, consider your ancestry. Verses 5 and 6, Peter illustrates the strategy by going back to the holy women of the Old Testament. Uh, he, he talks about all of them generally, maybe all the wives of the patriarchs, but then he singles out specifically Sarah, and he points to their makeup, how they used to, again, the word here is how they used to adorn themselves. Their adornment, their makeup, was their submission which looked like obedience. They, they used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, don't get too hung up on having to call your husband Lord. I'm not saying when you go home today that you'll no longer call him by his first name, but you'll just say, my Lord. No, that's not what this is saying. But I looked this up in Genesis 18, where Peter went to to get this, and Peter's just saying that Sarah talked about her husband in a respectful way. That's the way they would call him in those days. What you say today as husband, you might call him husband. Today, back then, they said Lord. She didn't call him my old man, even though he was old. And that's what she was actually laughing at in that scene, because God said that she would have children and that Abraham would be the father. But Sarah 
is actually a good example of strength in womanhood. She, she definitely was not a weak woman or a doormat. She got right into Abraham's face sometimes. So it's not talking again about weakness. But I do want you to get hung up on the bottom line motivation for those holy women. And that is, verse 5, that they hoped in God. They hoped in God. They were confident in God. They entrusted themselves to God. Does that language sound familiar? From back in chapter 2, verse 23, as Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly, these women kept entrusting themselves to God. They hoped in God. Their confidence that God would care for them, would bring them to their heavenly reward, as we read about in Hebrews 11. That allowed them to, end of verse 6, to do good and to not fear anything that is frightening. It allowed them to do good to their husbands and to not fear anything that is frightening. Do good. Don't fear. If we just look at things from an earthly perspective, it can sometimes be a bit scary and intimidating, can it? For wives, life at home can sometimes be fearful. And again, my previous caveat applies in abusive situations. But wives, keep hoping in God. Keep doing good. And be fearless, knowing that God ultimately has your back. God ultimately has your back. And trust yourselves to him. Hope in God. Don't hope ultimately in your husband. He's going to fail you. But God won't. You can entrust yourselves to him. Well, just a quick word to husbands. Husbands, as you relate to your wives, consider your mutuality. Consider your mutuality. Verse 7 Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her as a weaker vessel. And I think that, by the way, is just referring there to physical strength, not anything else. Honor her as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Heirs with you of the grace of life. This is what I mean by mutuality. So that your prayers may not be hindered. That just took a very serious turn at the end there, didn't it? Husbands get one quick verse, but it is packed and it is dense and it has a serious repercussion at the end attached to it, one that we didn't see with wives. So husbands and wives don't read weaker vessel as meaning there's some kind of weakness, some kind of difference when it comes to a a wife's Every aspect, actually, other than strength, her, her spirituality or her emotion or her intellect or her morality or anything like that. Peter immediately puts any of those kind of thoughts to rest by saying, you are fellow heirs of the grace of life. So where there is one difference, there is mutuality in all these other areas. We're mutual recipients of God's grace. We need to recognize, husbands, the fact that both we and our wives mutual recipients of the grace of life. And because of that, we need to show them honor. We need to see them as precious, as delicate. They need our most intimate care and concern and consideration. Don't ever, ever run down your wife. Or treat her as less than precious. Rather, honor her. She's been given to you by God. Stakes are high here, husbands. If you fail in this, now not only does it hinder your fellowship with your wife, it has the potential to cut you off from fellowship with God. That's a serious threat, a divine threat. Your prayers are going to be blocked. 
You're going to pray and it's going to be a message that comes up. This side is blocked. If you do not honor your wife, you should not expect that God will answer your prayers. In other words, you should not expect the blessing of God on your marriage or on your life. If you don't honor your wife, so live with her in an understanding way. It just means seek to understand her needs, her desires, her feelings. Respect her, love her, honor her. So, this is the exile's life. This is the Christian's life in the world. Not just this section, but all the sections previous. God is so kind to give us instructions on how to live among the Gentiles, isn't he? Not just as citizens or as employees, but right down into our homes and our marriages. And the way we live, the attitude and the mindset by which we live matters. The exile's life is not easy. It is not without suffering. It is not without injustice. But neither was it for our Lord. It is to him that we must keep on looking. And what's interesting, maybe ironic, is that when we do that, when we look to Christ, we will then be emboldened and encouraged to live really just just a rather ordinary life will be emboldened and encouraged to live an ordinary life where we just seek to do good. Where we just seek to do good. May God help us with that. Bow with me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your help. We thank you for your guidance. Father, without a verse like this, we would admittedly, and we confess, even when we don't, Go by the guidance of your word that we flounder and we might be apt to doubt. We might lack assurance. We might question why life is often hard and difficult. But a word like this from you gives us that assurance that you know exactly what's going on. You know precisely why we experience difficulties. Father, I do pray especially today for wives. I pray that this might be an encouraging word for them, especially for those who might have come this morning discouraged, who who maybe are not seeing any progress in their marriages, who might even be living in a season where they're facing hostility and opposition on the part of their husbands. Father, we pray that this word from you would be an encouragement for them to hope in you, and to persist in doing good. And we pray that these commendations of the gospel from their wives, this this, this kind of radical Christ-like living, might have the final result that their husbands are saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May the grace of God go with you today. Amen.